Media Masters with Paul Blanchard. Welcome to Media Masters, a series of one-to-one interviews with people at the top of the media game. Today I'm joined by Mark Thompson, Chief Executive of the New York Times. Starting out as a BBC trainee, Mark's rise saw him work as editor of the 9 O'Clock News and Panorama, head of factual programming, controller of BBC Two, director of television, before leaving to become Chief Executive of Channel 4. He returned to the Beeb in 2004 in the aftermath of the Hutton Inquiry as Director General. And in his eight years as DG, he reshaped the organisation to meet the challenge of the digital age, launching iPlayer, streamlining management, but also facing criticism for political bias, where he admitted that the BBC did struggle with impartiality. He joined the New York Times in 2012 as president and chief executive, and under his leadership, the paper has invested in virtual reality and has become the first news organisation in the world to pass the one million digital-only subscriber mark. On top of all of that, he's just released a new book, Enough Said, What's Gone Wrong with the Language of Politics. Mark, thank you for joining me. Hi there. That's quite an introduction, quite a <laughs> list of jobs. Are you exhausted? Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, different personality types. I think, you know, if you want to kind of work in modern media, you, you better be, you better have pretty relentless energy because it's changing all the time. There's lots of work to be done and you're trying to make decisions with too little information. So in a, in a way, I guess my slightly masochistic personality type probably suits the uh, this moment in media history and is it all masochism as it were because one of the questions i was thinking on the way to the studio was what, what's the real question i want to ask him and it was this sounds really bland and a bit lame but what was it like to be dg i mean is it a great you know great privilege and all of that or is it just a litany of of woe and pressures well, from absolutely everyone i think one of the odd things about me um and i'm not alone in this but I, i'm one of those people i kind of i love the things that other people hate in some ways. And what I mean by that is really difficult, knotty strategic problems, uh, organisational complexity, and, you know, to some extent, political battling and all all of that. I I always have found that interesting and engaging, and it kind of gets me out of bed. You know, I was a news editor, and I, I, I was a journalist, and, you know, the thing about journalists is you hear a loud report and you run towards it rather than run away from it and I think I've got a bit bit of that as a manager as well so so I mean to me you know it's it's about what do you fancy and if you fancy a quiet life 2016 is not the right right moment to join the media or certainly the newspaper industry but for me it's been a it's been great and I love the BBC and I love being director general of the BBC. Were you always ambitious I mean when you started with the BBC did you you think I'll end up DG? I, I I honestly don't feel ambitious, and that I, now I mean it's silly to, you know I mean I've I've had some some luck and I've had some senior jobs in the industry. It doesn't play out in my head as ambition. I, I I've uh, and indeed I, actually for much of my career I felt that often I was going for jobs where, I mean the hardest job, <laughs> the hardest job interview, the hardest process, the 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 greatest jeopardy was trying to become a graduate trainee at the BBC. Everything after that, everything, kind of, everything, everything follows after that. And quite often I felt I was you know, not one of ten candidates, but one of two or, or, or one of three. And in a weird way, I think an awful lot of people in our industry, probably very sensibly, in a way don't want to become senior, don't want to, to have – you know, the job of trying to figure out what comes next and, and, and all of the kind of human consequences that goes with that. And and so in a strange way, I think actually slightly to to people's surprise, it, it's less to do with kind of, I, it must be me, I must be the boss, and more being tapped on the shoulder as the, only, the last person left in the room in a way. 
But in, in a Nobody sense, believes that when I say that, but it's true. Your job, both what you're doing now and as DG, it reminds me almost of being the Home Secretary, whereas if you do a good job, no one will praise you, but th- there's a litany of people queuing up the, the second you get anything wrong and you're attacked from all sides. Yeah, but uh, I think with the BBC, it's a great public institution. Essentially, every household in the country has to pay for it. They own it. They have a passion about it, which often is actually... And fundamentally, I think, in many households, is loving it, relying on it, thinking of it as an essential part of their lives, but also often being annoyed, irritated, surprised. And to state the obvious, as as Mr Abraham Lincoln's meant to have said, probably didn't say, but is meant to have said, uh, you can't please all of the people all of the time. And there are plenty of issues, one that happened after I left, but, you know, the matter of Jeremy Clarkson and Top Gear comes to mind, where... You know, you've got some passionate, loyal Top Gear fans who passionately believe the BBC should keep Jeremy Clarkson. Obviously, you've got other people who quite understandably think when one person punches another on a production team, you know, actions have consequences. And that's a good example where whatever the BBC had done, it would get criticised. Do you think Tony Hall's doing a good job? I do think he's doing a good job. And I think Tony and his colleagues, it must be said, with the government have achieved... I think a a really strong Royal Charter. It's going to guarantee the BBC is of real scale and scope, um, serving the British public for years to come, I hope, with high quality programmes. The licensee settlement for the BBC is a tough one. uh, By the way, it was was tough in 2010 as well. And I think that all over the Western world, you can see governments and the commercial critics of public broadcasting tightening the purse strings and trying to limit the public broadcasters by reducing their spending. And I think that's a bad thing. I think commercial media faces so many challenges that it's a it's a it's a pity and a problem that the public's source, not just in the UK, but in many other countries, the public source of high quality, independent and free journalism is probably going to diminish over the coming years at the very time when the commercial players are less able to pay for it. Do you keep an eye on what's happening back home? I mean, we're, we're recording here in Manhattan, but I mean, if you look at what's just happened with Bake Off, do you think that uh, it was right that it moved to Channel 4? Or, or you do, know, you, do you I, kind of, do you second guess it thinking, well, if I was still DG, <laughs> I would have done that? Look, I, I mean, the, the, the wonderful thing about doing these jobs for a bit is you, you do get a lot of humility, um, and more of a sense of what it's like to be in the middle of one of these things. Uh, And also, I want to say something else, which is I I live in New York, and I'm three and a half thousand miles away. And I have an experience of UK media stories, which is much more like uh, the experience of of an ordinary kind of citizen in the UK, i.e., I might catch it, I might not. If it if it catches my interest, I might read a bit more. Um, people pass through New York, so sometimes I, I hear a bit more. But but I don't hear that much more than an ordinary member of the public w- would be in the UK. And just like an ordinary member of the public, I often find myself scratching my head. And, and I think Bake Off is a good example where in the end, if the answer is to public, not-for-profit public broadcasters in a kind of Dutch auction and a kind of fighting over a hit show when both of them, by their charters and and constitutions, are meant to be putting money as far as they can into new talent and new ideas, it feels like something's gone wrong in the system. It's one of the reasons why I asked about Bake Off, not to be kind of salacious, but because you kind of have seen it from both sides, both as DG, but also you ran Channel 4, of course. Do you think they've kind of overstepped the mark a little bit in entering this bidding war and made themselves right for privatisation? Well, look, I haven't spoken to um, either the BBC or Channel 4 about this. I mean, what I would say on Channel 4's behalf, I mean, I, I suppose essentially 
I'd need a bit of persuasion that it makes sense for, for Channel 4 to take a, a, a programme from the BBC and to spend what I think is going to be £25 million a year, which could be spent on new programming on, a, on an existing hit with existing talent. So I do need a bit of persuasion. I want to say that I've got a lot of sympathy with Channel 4. Channel 4 is a relatively small organisation fighting for its life. And, you know, one of the things it has to do is it has to find a reservoir of, of money it can, it can spend on new shows. You find that from, if you like, exploiting or harvesting, harvesting is the right word, the, the advertising revenue that comes from existing hits. Existing hits are harder to come by. So the, the kind of the extra money you can then spend on experimentation on new talent, harder to come by. American shows used to be a great way in which Channel 4 could buy programs economically, make, if you like, profits from them, and then use the profits to pay for Channel 4 News and for experimentation. That's harder. The American shows don't perform as well. There's many more outlets for them. The price has gone up. So that's become harder. So I can understand from Channel 4's point of view why having one or two absolute anchors in the schedule with a kind of guaranteed audience makes sense. But of course, getting a guaranteed audience is sometimes harder than it looks. And Bake Off with some key personalities taken out of the mix may, may not, but may prove hard to reestablish as a hit show. We'll go back to a few of these issues because uh, obviously I've got loads to ask you about. But I wanted to ask about the move to New York. I mean, it must have been quite a thing, not only to kind of uproot your family, change career, move from broadcasting into newspapers. Tell us how that happened. And, and was there a little bit of resistance? You know, people thinking, who's that limey come over here telling <laughs> us what to do? I mean, firstly, it's been, I have to say, it's been the most wonderful experience for me and, for, and I think for my family as well. I mean, it's been, a, um, and I, you know, I've got a transatlantic family, I'm an, uh, an American. American wife, my children have got both passports. I had two two of my children were, were already in the US college system when I arrived in, in, in New York. So in a sense, you know, some of the family, I was not the first yeah. member of my family yeah. to re, resettle in the US. Um, and indeed, my, my youngest son has just started the college in America as well. So all five of us are on this side of the Atlantic. Um, and because of family connections and business, I've spent a lot of time in America and in New York and and lived here for nearly a year um, in the 1980s. And where we have a mutual friend, I work with the great, um, now, the late, sadly, great Bob friend, late, sadly, late great Bob Friend, and I worked in this city with Bob. You used to speak with great fondness of his drunken well, adventures with yourself. Um, <laughs> I had an amazing time with Bob, and Bob, as I walk around New York today, is like a friendly ghost. I mean, I, I, I remember him and uh, the stories we did and and some of the hijinks um when i i can't walk around the city without thinking about Bob. i can only imagine so <laughs> so actually it it was a very natural move for me as a kind of if you like as a as a as a family man and 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 given given the past and i i thought it was just a it was another you know the great common point with the bbc if you like this is another of the world's great uh, media brands, news brands, in the case of the New York Times, but also I thought it was a kind of worthy cause. And I, 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 I mean, I've had the great privilege with the BBC and Channel Four and the New York Times of working for for institutions whose content I believe in, whose brands I, I admire, and whose future, you know, if I can help at all to give them a, a better or to help them find a better rather than a worse future, I think that's time well spent. And I'm I'm, I'm very driven by that. And although when I initially got a phone call saying, would I like to think about this job, I thought, surely not. You know, 
for the obvious reasons. I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm a Brit, not an American. How will they react? I've not spent much time in thinking through, you know, media beyond television and radio, though I had done some work in digital. The New York Times' answer to that was, actually, you've got a lot of international experience. We're very international. You know about video. You did some things at the BBC we thought were interesting in, in, in terms of developing um, digital, smartphone, and so forth, iPlayer being, being one of them. And I guess that's why the conversation became real and then they offered me the job. I mean, iPlayer is a fabric of British life now, isn't it? It's as much an institution as the, the cup of tea and the Queen, really. You, you, can't, um, you, could, you could not have iPlayer. We spent a couple of years really wrestling with how to get it to work and with real dark nights of the soul about whether we would ever get the 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 the, the product out of the door and um i have to say we launched it um i think on christmas day i want to say 2007 i went up tried it and thought this isn't going to work and it worked it was one of these great moments where i thought you know peak demand christmas day it won't work. It literally won't work. And that was you press the button and nothing will happen. It worked perfectly. And in a weird way, it's one of those you know, quite rare moments where something which feels at the time quite revolutionary, absolutely out there, surprisingly ahead of many digital insurgents and new players, works on day one and, has got, and, and essentially has worked ever since. So it was, that was a good moment. But I mean, it's completely changed everything. I, I commute in from Milton Keynes every morning and gone are the days when people would read a newspaper as you get on the, the train carriage. Everyone's got their, their iPad out and their headphones on yeah. and they're watching something yeah. they've downloaded on an iPlayer, usually Bake Off. Well, and there's something deep there, which is which is beyond, beyond iPlayer, which is that people's uh, willingness to consume video, movies, TV, um, other kinds of video and audio podcasts like like this one are, are absolutely coming back on the move but crucially not when a scheduler says you've got to you've got to watch or listen to this now but when it suits them i mean the prevalence simply of earphones smartphones and earphones and the fact that people can 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 hook up into radio and what used to be radio and tv offline and online in dozens of different use cases, different environments, different need states and the rest of it, it really changes our business, I think. And, of course, there'll be some things like live sport, like, you know, presidential debates in this country where you kind of want to be there, you want to actually listen, watch and listen to it going going out. Um, and interesting enough, this particular election cycle, I think Donald Trump in particular helps with this because there's something – from a, a, a political point of view, fascinating about Trump and in particular the unpredictability of Donald Trump. You'd love to kind of be there live to find out what happens, what he says, how he, how he re reacts. So there'll be exceptions to it. But for much of audiovisual content, TV content, radio content and so on, actually doing it at your convenience and with as much of it as you want, the whole series, multiple episodes – and that change of power and control from, you know, it being in the hands of a handful of individuals and being handed to the, to, the, to the public as a whole in America and Britain and elsewhere, that's a really striking change. And that's a change over not like 50 years. The guts of that have happened in the last 20 years and most of it's happened in the last 10 years. I mean, I was, you know, in 1996, I was, I was made controller of, of BBC Two. 
I literally, individually and personally chose all the programmes and decided where they went on that television network. And it was I had some support, but it was literally I commissioned every single programme. One person Incredible. with 10% of all viewing of television in the UK. And we've moved to a world where no individual has, has that level of control. And I have to say, in the end, although it's all of these changes are highly disruptive for, for, for the digital industry and they, they, they disrupt business models and they make careers much more difficult to navigate, it's hard not to feel that that's a good thing, not a bad thing. A good thing. I mean, because no one ever built a, a statue or a monument to a committee. Surely when uh, BBC Two either succeeded or failed, there was one person to blame. You could bring your... You've got some your accountability. You've got some, account- uh, some accountability. But I think that the, the, the interplay, I mean, if you like, the interplay of creative talent, new ideas, executives, absolutely executives play a part in this. You've got the guts to back interesting new ideas. And then, the, then the, the 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 empowered judgment of the public at large to figure out what's good, what's bad, what's what should you give a second chance to, what should you just look at for five minutes and say, forget it, this is never going to work. I think in the end, that's a healthier world, with one proviso, which is the U.S. is a very big market, and and what that means is you can, you know, get a a, a new daring piece of work. You can make that an economic success with a very small percentage of the population. It's harder in a smaller market like the UK. And I do think um, I recently watched the uh, BBC Three series Fleabag. It's really important that the British ecosystem is, is, is still able to put money behind projects like that i mean so it's a it's i think it's an absolutely spectacular piece of i've work. heard good things it's saved it's on a, my sky plus box it, it, it's, uh, a, it's, a, it's a wonderful piece of work yeah, i guess it's comedy drama is if you want to give it a it always makes comedy drama sounds like it's kind of it's like the kiss of death it's actually it's a wonderful funny but kind of dark and interesting and deep piece of work it's not clear to me that without channel four with a with a public service mission and without a BBC with, with a public service mission, you'd get many programs like that because of the scale of the market. Because in the end, you know, simply getting the economics, because you know, particularly scripted comedy and drama, it costs money to do it to a standard. Costs money, and so you know, I believe that in European markets, when I talk about small markets, I mean markets, you know, the size of the UK, which obviously by most people's standards is a big market. Some level of enlightened subsidy or enlightened public involvement I think will increase creativity and will increase the room for new talent and what I believe about the UK is the UK's got outsized talent and I think if you you know I as we think about where is growth for the UK economy going to come from how is Britain's reputation going to grow around the world I think making sure that you're growing talent in, 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 in TV and radio and in the sector and figuring out intelligent ways of exporting it and getting audiences around the world used to seeing great British talent, is, it remains really important. But there's something to be said, is there, not about the kind of brutal commerciality that you have in the media here where shows are given five or six episodes to succeed and then they're cancelled. You, you read about that all of the time. Um, w- was there a bit of a culture shock when you came here insofar as some of the, you know, you've, you've held a senior leadership job in the UK media and one here. What are the kind of similarities? What are the differences? Uh, I think that's, that's a complicated issue. And I think the difference, I mean, I, I'm, I have many friends in American television 
um, and have experience of American television, not as an employee, but but as a partner and a colleague and friend um, over many years. And then there's then there's uh, the American newspaper industry, and then there's the New York Times. Um, American TV um, is very commercial, but it must be said, I mean, in a sense, creativity in this country comes from an extraordinarily expensive process of making many, many, many pilots, many of which are many millions of dollars go into, uh, out of which then shows are selected. And it's true that those shows are often, if 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 they're not performing, will be cut off in their prime after just a few weeks. However, many, many more shows get started and actually complete episodes get made than would be true in the UK where a smaller number of shows... They try more things, don't they? They try more things and maybe stick with them less less hard. Now, I think you can make a case both ways. I mean, I, I passionately believed as a controller that particularly with comedy, you just needed the courage to press on with comedies and accept that the, 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 the conundrum with comedies is you have to get to know the characters to find the situation funny how do you get to know the characters Uh, so you and the audience need to persevere for a bit and over time you hope that an audience will find a great show will love it and the audience will build i have to have to say one's experiences that's true you know like one out of five or one out of ten times most of the time when the audience don't come they never come. Um, so, you know, there's, there is a, there's a Darwinian struggle going on with comedy. And I think one of the really troubling things about television in both the US and the UK is, although there are some very funny shows on TV, John Oliver's having a great run on HBO. Love last week tonight. In this great, it, 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 so there's some very funny shows, I would argue, and there's quite a lot of quite good comedy drama with a lot of the emphasis on the word drama i think classic scripted situation comedy there's not as much great comedy today as 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 would be true and as as you would want for a healthy ecology whereas drama although i think you could argue that the television drama is not quite where it was in america let us say four or five years ago that there's lots of very beautifully made very professionally scripted fine fine pieces that the kind of peaks of the Sopranos and of Breaking Bad of we've slightly come down from a peak in this country both here and in the UK there's some great drama I don't think I've watched any US dramas since Sons of Anarchy a few years ago I mean Kurt Sutter's fantastic but nothing you're a braver man than me I haven't got the stomach for Sons of Anarchy it's, oh, uh, it's, it's, it's quite strong material it's, it's amazing you've got to stick past the first season mm. but then it gets incredibly good yeah. uh, let, let's go a little bit more in terms of your day job now because I mean one of, when you were DG obviously you had to be politically impartial but now at the New York Times you can you can come out for a presidential candidate for example so, I, so, I gather that you've obviously chosen to back Hillary Clinton. Well, I mean, that must so, be quite so, an easy decision to make. The biggest difference is, uh, as 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 chief executive of the of Channel Four and as director general of the BBC, I was I was not just the chief executive; I was also an editor in chief. I'm not the editor in chief of the New York Times. We have an executive editor, Dean Bacay. Uh We have a editorial page editor who's in charge of the opinion pages, uh, James Bennett. And we have a publisher um, who's a member of the Oxalsberger family, um, Arthur Oxalsberger Jr. So I have to say, I, I have the, I would say broadly, the the um, considerable pleasure of, of, not not having, yeah. uh, uh, of not having, um, after 
essentially 10 years of being an editor-in-chief at the at the UK, that's not no longer part of my responsibility. And I, I want to say, although I find editorial decision-making incredibly interesting still, I often, you know, hear about and occasionally get asked advice about editorial decisions. In practice, I have to say, it, one of the minor pleasures of, of being CEO of the New York Times is not having to worry about that. Yeah. So so I've not been involved in the decision to, to uh, support Hillary Clinton. It shouldn't come as a great surprise to your listeners, the the last Republican candidate the New York Times endorsed, I think, was Dwight Eisenhower. So, wow. Uh, uh, so, it, the, the 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 opinion pages and the editorial board of the New York Times, you know, absolutely have a tradition of of of, of supporting Democrat candidates and broadly liberal policies. That the newspaper and all its digital assets in its news coverage does aim to be impartial, however, and to report the news as news. But as a, as a British media guy living here now, there must be a certain duality to, or, or I would see it if I were you, that in one sense the, the sheer spectacle of having a candidate like Trump is going to sell newspapers because what on earth has he done yesterday? You've got to read about it. But then the other thing is, presumably as someone living here, are you worried about the prospect of a Trump victory? Well, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't have... Um, uh, strong um, political leanings. I mean, in a way, what happened to me is I joined the BBC and I actually decided in many ways that it made the most sense to, to focus on how you cover politics and how you think about politics than to to be active in politics. And that's meant that, in fact, for much of my life, I've not voted. I did actually vote in the referendum, but but uh, recent referendum, but generally I've not voted because of that. I didn't, didn't want to take sides. And I, I would argue strongly at the BBC that I was in favour of doing everything we could to strive for impartiality. I don't think you ever achieve perfect impartiality, certainly not in an organisation as big as the BBC. I'm not even quite sure that it would be easy to define what perfect impartiality was. Andrew Mass said that there was an unconscious liberal bias, wasn't it? I can't remember the exact phrase he used. Well, I, th- I think that the, the issue, and I've talked about this publicly before, is, is it's almost like worldview and whether the worldview of, of your journalists can be open enough that they can they can always understand issues from a range of perspectives and i think that that's that's what you strive for which is and and by the way it helps to have conservatives people who who tend to think as it were from a a perspective which goes with the right rather than the rather than the left you know um inside your newsroom inside your decision making bodies inside your senior leadership and uh I've got one or two former colleagues who are in Her Majesty's government at the moment. So we, we, you know, over the years we have absolutely had a steady throughput of of um, uh, of conservatives in in the BBC. But it's true that many media organisations and and journalists as a group probably tend to you know, in their personal politics, they tend to the left rather than the right. I was going to say it actually works the other way as well, because I, I can also think of a prominent former cabinet minister that's now the BBC's director of radio. This is James Purnell <laughs> yeah, becoming yeah. director of radio. So, so no, I mean, the, the, I mean, it seems to me that, that you know, as a big media organisation, you know, and I think if Dean Bacay, the editor of The Times, was, was next to us, I think Dean would say this as well. You want a broad range of perspectives in in your newsroom so that you can cover the news in 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 a way which reflects the full range of uh, range of opinions but what we try and do at the times and what the bbc still tries to do is to try and handle these things as objectively as it can and again i mean we talked earlier about the bbc being criticized by most things i mean one of the things the bbc was criticized for during the referendum campaign was a kind of excessive fairness if that's right a kind of irresponsible level of fairness i think what people have not 
notice there is that during election campaigns, including referenda campaigns, the BBC is under an obligation to go for a much more strict form of impartiality in the matter of how you interview people, how much time different people get, which is not true when there isn't a referendum campaign. When we're outside of Perda. But, I mean, how how influential is an editorial endorsement these days in, in the days of social media and Twitter? And, uh, you know, I imagine most Trump supporters, I mean, this might be prejudice on my part, but they don't seem like they can, many of them can be reasoned with or moved. They seem to be wholehearted supporters of him from an emotional centre rather than a kind of... Well, I think um, you've got to be a little bit careful about that. I mean, Trump's polling numbers have moved around a lot. And is that as a result uh, uh, well, of the well, like, What I mean is there are people who are sometimes Trump supporters and sometimes not. When you know, I, I mean, uh, so there's a lot of volatility. I mean, he may well have a hardcore, but his polling – and his polling goes deep into the US population. I mean, I suspect this has shifted because um, he's actually fallen back a bit in, in over the last week, week or so. And I think all of these pieces of volatility have to be taken with a pinch of salt. But – Two weeks ago, the New York Times had some polling analysis which showed that amongst American white women voters, Trump and Clinton were tied. They were 50-50 amongst American white women voters. And I think My flabber is gasted. It really is. Well, I think you've really got to be careful about stereotyping Trump supporters. In the same way, I think in the UK, uh, some commentators were guilty of stereotyping Brexit supporters as angry white working class racists if ever and put that very crudely the, the stereotyping in this country is very similar um you cannot get to a plurality or above a plurality in the uk on the basis of such a stereotype and nor can trump get to some of the numbers he has achieved above 40 percent on the basis of of one narrow definition and i think that both in the matter of brexit and in the matter of Trump and his, if you like, surprising passage through the primaries and now to, even if Hillary Clinton wins and, you know, as we speak, the odds seem to favour her, though I would say, you know, be careful, be careful. Um, Many people were sure that Remain was going to win the Brexit campaign, so let's see what happens. Um, I don't think you can explain it by one kind of group of people who won't change their minds. And as you know, I've written a book, and one of the things the book is about, um, this is a book about political language, and one of the things the book is 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 trying to get to the bottom of what's going on and, and what gives politicians like Donald Trump uh, the kind of power they've got right now um, with what, the public. What is going on then? Tell us about the book. What conclusion? So the book's called "Enough Said: What's Gone Wrong with the Language of Politics," and in a way, it's kind of come out of my career in the sense that I've spent more than thirty years, one way or another, either reporting um, politics or editing uh, news and current affairs shows which dealt with politics, or being an editor in chief for much of the time. And by the way, meeting politicians, sometimes being on the receiving end of, of political stories. And and kind of, in, in, at least in my head, and this is what the book's about, seeing things changing, the way politicians spoke changing, uh, the way the media covers politics changing. And I think in particular, seeing what I think has been an exchange of explanatory power, the space to discuss issues, to explain public policy to the public, either directly or indirectly through the media. So away from explanatory power towards 
impact, towards exaggeration, and towards you know something which I call authenticism, which is not necessarily being authentic, but it's it's putting a focus on authenticity and making claims about your authenticity. I me, I stand up for what well, I believe in. I think we've seen a shift away from explanatory power, the ability to uh, discuss and explain public policy to the public either directly or through the media, and towards a desperation for impact, often accompanied by exaggeration, and something I, in the book I call authenticism, which is a kind of slightly unnatural focus on, in quotes, authenticity, on being authentic. And almost, I mean, you know, the sense of some people are more real than others. My reality is better than yours. That's I'm, right. I'm, the... I'm more connected to reality than you are. And so some examples. Michael Gove during the Brexit campaign, I think people in this country have had enough of experts. I mean, Michael Gove is an expert. <laughs> He's been a minister. He's a very thoughtful minister. He's very interested in statistics. And there he is saying people have got sick and tired of experts. And by the way, I think it's a very astute thing to say in many ways. I think if you if you had a poll and said, are you sick and tired of experts? I'll bet you get a, a resounding majority for that. But what does that mean? Isn't our task, given that modern government is intrinsically, intrinsically about expertise? I mean, having won the vote... Brexit now means combing the entire world to try and find expert trade negotiators. They've got to fill a ministry with trade negotiators because they've got to they've got to exit exit the European Union. So I mean, the idea that you can you know voting Brexit means no, no more experts. On the contrary, it's the beginning of a decade of of kind of root canal in terms of experts with incredibly complicated issues which have to be resolved, you know, for good or ill. So you know, how do we get here? How do we get from um, the world I remember just coming into the industry, the end of the 70s, um, the early 80s, Margaret Thatcher in power in the UK. And when I first came to America in 1983, Ronald Reagan here, that kind of world which it's beginning to change. You can feel it beginning to change and you can feel the media beginning to change as well. But it still looks back. I mean, both Thatcher and Reagan also look back to the... The, the 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 political language and the style of interviewing of the 50s 60s and 70s the kind of post-war consensus and they're, they're trying to break it but they're still part of it how do we get from there to the world of donald trump and the way trump speaks is is very, if you look at trump and put trump against reagan who's also a great populist they speak in a very different way um reagan has still got moments of real kind of traditional eloquence the when he goes on television on the night of the challenger disaster to talk about the dead astronauts there's a wonderful kind of edwardian cadence and sort of stately quality to what he says and donald trump i mean donald trump's got a very distinct style of speaking but it couldn't be further from that uh, it seems of, to work though it seems oh, to oh, resonate no, no. with his supporters I, I, think, I think the really important thing to say is um, be careful of in a sense patronizing this because it's working but there's a kind of it's very friendly it's very twitter friendly it's very immediate it works very well on social media but but often trump is like a is like a man frantically circling something in a newspaper it's like you know barack obama founded isis he's the founder of isis he founded it he founded isis mm. his co-founder well if you ask me it's it's cheating hillary clinton Crooked Hillary's and crooked her. Hillary, and and 
And this kind of recursive back to the same words, we've got to build a wall, have to build it, folks, we've got to build a wall walls work it, it, it's um but the, doesn't the meme work i mean I, you talked about brexit earlier i remember it was vote for brexit and take back control i mean boris must have said that on the eve of the the referendum poll or maybe about 30 times in the big debate well, the, the, the it took i think it took both sides a long time and i think the remain camp never found a language they never found a positive language about europe they never really found any short phrases at all the brexiters found two they found take back control very simple. It's very attractive as well. That's a that's a kind of value proposition to a voter. You could take back control. Now you can argue. Sounds good, doesn't it? It sounds very good. And and by the way, let's not denigrate that. You may argue, well, it's not true. But take back control is a kind of offer. What was the offer from Remain? Essentially, it was if you vote Brexit, the ten plagues of Egypt will descend on this land. It was a large number of very important people, the experts, have told you how terrible it's going to be. You must pay attention to them because they know more than you do. That's not a particularly appealing message. Take back control is a simple, clear proposition. The other thing was Independence Day was uh, voting day. The referendum day can be Independence Day. Now, this is essentially borrowed from an American sci-fi movie. But again, it, it's it's a simple thing. You could be independent or you could remain under the under the heel of Brussels or whatever the opposite of independence were. So I think, you know, whatever you think about the policies, whatever you think about the result, there's no question in the matter of finding simple, clear language, the Brexiters won. But, you know, I would say, and the Electoral Reform Society has come out and said this in, in recent days, it was a terrible debate on both sides. Fear, you know, competing fear, what are you more frightened of? Are you more frightened about economic collapse or frightened of immigration? Very little sense of explanation of the actual issues involved, a blurring of EU immigration with non-EU immigration. Um, I think it was a really, even compared to the... Scottish referendum of, of two years earlier, the 2014 Scottish referendum, I thought it was a pretty, pretty squalid affair. And I think I, I hope I would have had the courage to say that if, if Remain had won. I think it was a dismal debate and it would have been that's irrespective of the result. Do you think there's a huge disconnect though? And I, as I've said this before, but you know, I hesitate to use the phrase normal people, but they're, they're so disconnected from the kind of political establishment of all colours that they just want to anything that kind of is a rejection of that, whether it be potentially independence for Scotland or Brexit. I mean, I, I thought my friends yeah. who were Brexiteers, the more establishment figures came out supporting for Remain, even when Barack Obama flew in, it actually doubled their resolve not to change their mind. It made things worse. And I, I think that was a failure of communication on the Remain side, is they didn't realise that everything they did made things worse and it entrenched the opposition to the idea. So I think one of the things that's happened, I talk about this in the book, is is that the language and the, the again, the worldview of the people who, who run the country, um, run Britain, run America, the lawyers the economists, the planners, the politicians, the executives. And by the way, you'd absolutely include people like the direct general of the BBC and the chief executive of the New York Times. So I'm not claiming I'm not one of these people. The, the, the way they think, the, the, the kind of planet PowerPoint, the, the um, ease with which you think about trade-offs and, and statistics and data and the world of the majority of the population – who don't do those things and don't think about those things very often, not because they're stupid, but because they just that, that's not part of their lives. 
and in particular of a group which one of the British political scientists calls the left behinds. Uh, they're left behind in the sense that they, these are people who have not seen palpable benefits from globalization uh, and from modernization and digitization. They've not really been winners in that. They've seen greater job insecurity. They've seen, you know, the future for their children looking more troublesome and more difficult. Um, they've got much more economic insecurity than they expected. They they feel they're the first generation you know, for maybe two generations, three generations, not to be sure of of having as good a retirement as their predecessors. For that group, this talk, this kind of technocratic talk about the benefits of free trade and, you know... The, it's another world. It, it, it's, it's another world. And I think, although I think we've got to be careful about, you know, a kind of a language of real people or normal people, ordinary decent citizens and the sort of scum who are the you know one percent i mean i think in a way we're on the brink of really divisive language when you know we know there's much much more interplay between these groups neither of my parents went to university i don't i don't come from you know aristocratic stock or anything like it and you know um you know i mean i think my family and my father's side you can go back as far as four generations of somebody coming into Preston in Lancashire with a knapsack on their back and that's it that's the that's the grand family tree sort of thing and the 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 extent to which people move between classes and and between is is greater than certainly used to be greater than than many people think so i think we're all one species in the end but it's become very divisive both here and in the uk but crucially in other countries too if you look at the five star movement and beppe grillo in italy for example, and the rather tricky referendum which uh, uh, Signor Renzi has to either win or lose and the risk of that referendum about constitutional change in Italy becomes an opportunity for a massive protest vote with, in this case, the Five Star Movement led by a, essentially a stand-up comedian becoming the, 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 the receivers of power in Italy. This is happening across the Western world and it's partly because the rate of change in our world and the rate at which things which used to be taken for granted are changing is bewildering electorates everywhere. And what do you think, to, the, to what extent social media and rolling news, you know, you've got the wheel where you've got, got to re revolving headlines every 10 yeah. minutes, is, is contributing to that? You mentioned about the kind of the increased dependence on impactful language because yeah. a tweet is only 140 characters, even though news channel is 24 hours, the dwell time is going to be 10 minutes per, yeah. you know, per viewing session. So you've got to cram a lot in. Is that the inevitable destination of where this is all going? Or is it actually a, a huge agent of bringing it about more quickly? So when I think about social media and, and the internet more broadly i think i think of one very very big set of pluses and i think of some negatives as well and the plus is is an obvious one it is genuinely democratizing far more information is available to the public than ever before and if you want to find out about public policy if you want to find out about issues there's never been a better moment in human history to just do that and although not everyone's online you know, most people are, mm. and you know, you can go to a public library. So I think there's, I think that's an incredible plus. Secondly, if you've got opinions, you can share them. You can make your own content, and you can distribute it to the entire planet at virtually nil personal additional cost. So incredible democratization, both of knowledge and of opinion. Those are pluses. 
there are two big negatives, I think. One is an obvious one, which is the Pandora's box. Everything's on the internet. The most thoughtful, we have a wonderful philosophy blog at the New York Times called The Stone. I'd recommend it to anyone. It's kind of, it's professional philosophers thinking about big issues, thinking about popular issues, helping, in a sense, ordinary thoughtful people to think through complex issues. It's the most magnificent thing. One of my favorite things about the New York Times. So there's lots of wonderful stuff, but the bad and the ugly and the psychotic and the murderous is all there as well. And unfortunately, some of the spirit of the bad part of social media and of Twitter and and, and of the dark web is filtering back into public life. Vitriol and bullying isn't just restricted to, it's absolutely there, it's not restricted to internet trolls. It's coming into political mainstream. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the ugliness of what politicians say about each other, they don't really realise that they're talking their entire profession down, that when they t- accuse each other of lying, the public think, okay, fair enough, you're all liars. They don't really understand that. So, But the kind of leeching back of the poison from the anonymous web back into public life is obviously happening and it's destroying the conventions of politeness and of just the kind of reciprocal altruism, which means I'll shut up and let you make your point, then I'll reply to you. That's all breaking down. And it's because the kind of screaming, ranting form of argument of the internet, quite a lot of public commentators and public figures are beginning to think that's normal and it's becoming normal. So that's the first negative. I mean, the second negative for me is a more complicated one. I sort of, I've, I feel I felt this happening in the 1980s. And it's the acceleration effect. It's the acceleration effect of the 24-7 news cycle and what it does to media and what it does to stories. And so I remember I was in charge of the BBC News, news operation in Chenoweth Square for much of the Chenoweth Square crisis in 1989. And by 1989, CNN has launched and is becoming big. The internet exists, but it's not. there isn't really an internet yet. But certainly for the BBC, with BBC Radio, BBC Television, suddenly we were finding this op- quite big news operation covering one of the biggest stories of the year and the decade. We were, we were filing not one story a day or even 10 stories a day, but we were doing nearly you know, between 25 and 30 cut television and radio stories plus two ways, plus, you know, very quick, you know, down the line TV interviews. And so suddenly a lot of content. 24, literally 24 hours a day, somebody cutting something, something, somebody feeding something. And I remember thinking very clearly, and again, in the first Gulf War a couple of years later, this is what the future looks like. It looks like you've got this practical problem is you've got a journalist – do you want them to go out and find out what's going on? Or do you want them to stand in front of a, a microphone and a camera to say what's going on? How do you square that circle? How do you go on doing journalism? How do you go on having thinking time for trying to understand what a story is and actually then presenting that story? And frankly, if you think about, as it were, the difference between the volume and the intensity of the news cycle in 1989 or 1991, 92, compared to today, we've got a kind of 10x intensification since then. So that's kind of some of the digital effects. What happened to media is that digital and 
the disruption through cable television, satellite television, and the disruption of newspapers through the internet, media organisations came under immense competitive pressure. And that's when the temptation to try and find the strongest opinion, the shortest, most punchy headline, the thing that's going to work well on Twitter, that's when that comes to the fore. And so you get this kind of intensification and acceleration of the news. And meanwhile, something else is going on. I start my book with um, a phrase coined by Sarah Palin, which was the death panels. And this is 2009. It's healthcare. It's American healthcare reform. It's Obamacare. And Sarah Palin has latched on to... Another great phrase, death panels. Death panels, which essentially was about one subject, which was the proposal that the essentially the, the, the federal government and the federal medical um, programs would pay for old people to have, very important to say, voluntary counselling on end of life. You know, you're coming to the end of your life. How much care do you want? Sarah Palin, in a single phrase, turns this into an Orwellian dystopia. There's going to be panels, a bit like the panels in concentration camps. Barack Obama's going to be behind the desk. There's going to be federal bureaucrats. And they will take, and she mentions in the original Facebook posting and tweet that she's worried about her son, who, who's Down syndrome. Trig is a is Down syndrome uh, person, child. And she's worried that she and Trig are going to be brought in front of the death panel to decide whether Trig lives or dies. That's the implication. Now, forget the fact that end of housing is literally Best about for John very McCain, then. Uh, we, we can't well, have these death panels around can we so death panels is an example i mean at one level it's a brilliant piece of rhetoric it's a it's a concentrated claim it says obamacare it's not good faith barack obama is not someone who's trying to do something good for the country we happen to disagree with his policy it's saying barack obama wants to kill your children and yet the phrase is so powerful it was picked up by everyone you know american network news behind the that muscular you know or or pulchritudinous anchor is a is a slide saying death panels on the strap below cnn and fox news death death panel and you don't even know whether if you've got the sound down or you're walking through an airport and you see you don't even know seen it you, you don't even know who's whether the people on the tv are arguing in favor or against it or if you see it you know, on somebody's homepage or on your on your smartphone, you don't know which side you're on. You've heard. I mean, over eighty percent of the U.S. population within a few days had heard the phrase, and many people, particularly many Republicans, thought that it was a it was a piece of actual policy proposal. They actually literally thought that one of the proposals inside Obamacare was the institution of death panels. And is that kind of loss of subtlety an issue when you think commercially for the New York Times? So, for example, you mentioned earlier about the um, uh, philosophy writing yeah. that the, the, the New York Times has. So how do you how do you get exposure and gain readers yeah. for that in a kind of clickbaity world where you're competing yeah. against pictures of cats from BuzzFeed? You're also trying to prioritise your philosophy postings on the Facebook newsfeed when its yeah. algorithm is prioritising commercially other interests. It, it must be incredibly difficult to do that, really, because actually you've got the challenge editorial of reducing the incredibly nuanced philosophy posting into 140 characters yeah. to try and get that click. So so what I want to say is we know what we stand for. I mean, I think one of the great things about the New York Times uh, and one of the great benefits of the New York Times relative and particularly to the BBC, I and mean, the BBC's got this immensely interesting and exciting but also 
tough, tough job of appealing to everyone, of, of offering something of value to every household in the land. Now, the New York Times, we want to be influential. We want our audience to, to be very broad. But we are, we are aiming to provide serious news, features and opinion. That's our job. That's our brand. And if you don't want serious news, features and opinion, we're not the right place to come. And so uh, what I'm really proud of, we now have an audience of about 125 million people a month who come to us. And we have a deeply engaged audience in, you know, in, the, in the tens of millions. And so not everyone who comes to us, I'm claiming, is, is, is deeply engaged, but we have a big, deeply engaged audience as well. And we have, as you said, we've got a very successful digital subscription model. I mean, for me, that's because we're doubling down on seriousness and on, you know, trying to produce quality. And I think, interestingly enough, you know, when I think about my colleagues, the people I worry about are the legacy publishers and some of the new entrants who decided to go down the middle and to try to be all things to all men and to try and build vast, relatively thin audiences with clickbait and with sort of, you know, jolly, cheerful, mainstream news, because there's an awful lot of that available for nothing on the internet. Uh, The kind of advertising which goes with that on the internet uh, you're competing head-to-head with Facebook and Twitter and with uh, Google for that advertising. Those are tough guys to compete head-to-head with. And as it happens, I mean, we have by far the most successful digital business that I'm aware of um, in our space compared to our competitors, new and old. We're going to make half a billion dollars of revenue out of digital this year. We've done that not by compromising, but by actually doubling down on investigations, great international news coverage, you know, really thoughtful commentary and quality culture and lifestyle coverage as well. You've been BBC DG, you're now Chief Executive of the New York Times. What's next? I mean, is there a bigger job? What's the next rung on the ladder up? Global domination? I'm not looking for a bigger job. In many ways, what I've really one of the things I've really enjoyed about the New York Times is its size. I mean, it's, a, it's a big organisation. It's a lot smaller than the BBC, though. It's, it's three, three and a half thousand people rather than, I guess, 20,000 20, people. And what attracts me to the Times, and what's always really attracted me, is is the mission, the idea of of getting behind and finding a future for quality journalism, for, for journalism which really makes a difference in the world. And I've not finished at the Times and I'm not looking for a new job. Last question then. What's been your best day of your career so far and what's been the worst day? Oh, the best day of my career is actually really easy. It's the day when Alan Johnson was released by his captors uh, or by um, by the authorities in Gaza. Alan was a BBC correspondent who'd been kidnapped in Gaza. I remember it well. We were desperately worried about him, um, I think with good reason, for a long time. And there was a day when I'd always hoped that a political solution would be found, but it still came as a, as a complete surprise and a very pleasant surprise. What about the worst one? You know, Lord Patton not backing you on all these various pay shenanigans? That I, can't be nice. I, weirdly, I don't remember the bad days and in a sense i mean literally i mean it's interesting i i think i've been uh, working in the industry for more than 30 years i scratched my head to think of uh, there was a day which i thought was going to be really a really bad day uh, and arguably i guess if you if you want to go for the 24 hour clock it was a really bad day there was a day in in the autumn of 2010 
where I thought the government was going to impose, this was the government of uh, the coalition government uh, led by David Cameron, impose a settlement on, on a, a license fee settlement on the BBC, having had no uh, no public discussion, no consultation, but impose a settlement uh, against my express advice and against my wishes and the wishes of the BBC and the BBC Trust, which would have forced the BBC essentially to pay for the over 75s. And in my my view, taken £750 million. Pounds it was just a cut in effect. A, a gigantic cut. And moreover, asking the BBC to take over a piece of, of kind of social policy in a way which I thought would be very difficult for the BBC ever to get out of. Um, and I was told they'd made the decision. I got called by the Secretary of State, called in to see him, to say, I'm sorry, Mark. Uh, this was Jeremy Hunt. Jeremy, I think, was against this, or certainly said he was, and commiserated with me. And I was on the way home, on the train, and I wrote my resignation letter. Uh, I didn't think I should stay. Uh, I knew many um, members of the BBC Trust were also considering their position. Uh, media geek point, to whom do you address your resignation letters? I, I, it's a very Give good to point to, 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 the chair the to, to the chairman of the Trust is the, is, the, is the answer. I was composing that and trying to think about what I would say to my colleagues. And we were just going through, you know, just about to come into Slough Station where, where I got a phone call from the government saying, you know, we're thinking twice about this. Why don't you come back and have a further conversation? So I got, I kind of ran up the steps <laughs> over the footbridge, back down the other side, got on the next train back to London and got back probably to the uh, Ministry of uh, the of Culture, Media and Sport, probably about, I don't know, half past nine, ten o'clock at night and was there until after lunchtime the next day. Well, Mark, on, on that moment of high drama, we've run out of metaphorical tape, so unfortunately we're going to have to leave it there, but it has been a fantastic podcast and a great interview. I could go on for hours longer. Thank you for your time. Thank you. A Big Things Media Production. Big Things!